Today we'll be reading from Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Oreb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I was having a conversation a few weeks ago, uh, or maybe this is even last week, with a guy that's uh, in our church. And he said, man, this this Exodus series, it's, it's blowing my mind. And he said, I just feel like I'm starting to see my whole life through the lens of this book. And when he said that, I was like, yes, you know, that's the deal. Like, you're, A plus, right? You, you get it. That is actually the point of the whole Bible. I don't know if you know that. The Bible is not just a list of good principles to live by. It's not just, you know practical wisdom that you can have. It's, it's actually, it's this epic story that God is telling of how he interacts with humanity, who he is and how he interacts with people. And if you find this story, and if you enter into this story, you can know God. That's why we so need this revelation, this story of, of what God is telling you. You can actually understand your whole life through this story. I've often told my kids, I've said this before, that you know, the Bible is like, it's like your favorite movie that then you see yourself in. You know, my, my kids, uh, I know I've said this before, I asked them a few months ago, what's your favorite movie? And they, and they said The Sandlot, which I was happy about because that's one of my favorite movies. And you know, as, as you get into watching, for those of you that are like young parents, the, you know, those of you just dedicated your kids, <clears throat> you gotta suffer through some like really horrible movies and then your kids start watching decent movies and it's like very exciting because you can watch with them something that you actually enjoy also. But I said, you know, it's like the Sandlot and you, um, you know, all your favorite characters in the Sandlot and they're all playing baseball, you know, Squints Paladoras and Scotty Smalls and Benny the Jet Rodriguez. And then all of a sudden, you're there, John Kellis, and you're there, Imran, and you're there, Rainer, playing baseball with them. That's what the Bible is like. It's this story of who God is and and what he has done and what he is doing that actually invites you to be a part of the story. And the best way to understand what it's like to interact with God, what it's like to know God, is to know how these people that have interacted with God, who have come before us, how they related to God and how God is related to them. Now, if you've been in the past few weeks, we've, we've been entering into this story here in this book of Exodus, 
this story of the people of God escaping bondage in Egypt and going to a life of worship, a life of freedom with God. And, and, and like this whole story, this whole book, this chapter here is so helpful in these things. It, it helps us understand the character and the nature of God. It helps us to know what it means to know him and it helps us to understand what it means to be in relationship with him. We've been talking about this. God does not invite us into some sort of transaction, right? He does this for us, we do this for him, but it's a covenant. It's a real meaningful relationship where we know him, where we trust him, where we love him. So three ideas that we see in this text today, obedience, complaint, and water. Let's look at obedience. There's a tidbit in the story that you could kind of read over, but I think it's pretty important. Verse one, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness in stages according to the command of the Lord. They moved through the wilderness in stages according to the command of the Lord. They're coming out of slavery in Egypt. They're coming into the freedom of God. And how does God lead them? How does God take them to the next place? He takes them stage by stage by stage pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. God is leading them one day at a time according to the command of the Lord. You know, when I was in college, um, it was a great time of spiritual growth for me. But of course, you know, when you're in college, there's so much about your life that is unknown, you know? And so I, I would go out into the woods and around Auburn there and I would go on these hikes and I would pray and I would say, Lord, you know, show me what my life is going to be like in 20 years, right? Give me a revelation. It's like, I'm, I'm fine to live into it, but I just wanna know who I'm gonna marry and what I'm supposed to do. Just, just give me the clarity on what my life is going to be like someday. And I guess that's the kind of prayer that a 20-year-old would pray, but it's not really how the Lord works. The Lord typically moves us. The way he leads us is like this. <laughs> day by day by day. Just, just keep following the cloud. Just keep following the pillar of fire. You don't, you don't usually have the vision of what the next 20 years is going to bring or even the next five years. One step after another, after another, after another. You know, Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount, don't be anxious about your life. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. But trust God today. Obey God today. Do the things that you know the Lord wants you to do today. Just obey the Lord today. And that, and I want you to hear this, that's actually a sign that you love him. That's actually a sign that you trust him. You don't, you don't necessarily have the big picture in mind. You don't exactly know what is going to happen next, but you're, you're trusting the Lord today. And I want you to hear this. God delights in that kind of trust, in that kind of obedience. You know, if you, if you know me, you know I love to travel. And one of the things I love about traveling is the, I love the whole process. I love doing it. I love telling the stories afterward, but I even love before. I love planning it. I like doing the research. I, you know, I'm a big Steve, um, oh, uh, what, what, uh, it's Rick Steves. Yeah, sorry, okay, thank you. I'm a big Rick Steves guy. Um, I like Frommers. I like the books, you know. 
I love the travel books. I like mapping it out. And um, I, I enjoy the whole thing. Now, Paige, though, I love Paige as a travel companion. But Paige doesn't do any of that. In fact, most of the time, she doesn't even really know where we are, you know, when we're traveling, you know. Um, but she is an awesome travel companion because she just trusts me. She's like, you know what, Jason, I know you're going to make it awesome. Like, I know it's going to be fun. And so she just comes along and has a great time. And, and I, I actually love that. I love that she trusts me. I love that she's not always questioning me. I love that she says, you know what, you, you've, you've proven yourself before. You're a good travel guide, and, and I'm just going to go and have a great time. That actually makes me feel, it's like one of the things that she does for me that makes me feel the most loved. And I think that that's the same with the Lord. When we trust him, day after day after day, he delights in that. Even when we don't understand, even when we don't know how exactly how it's going to work out, we just obey. We just do what the Lord wants us to do. He is so pleased. Even though we don't like what he says, we just obey. We just do what the Lord wants us to do. And we trust that ultimately his plans are right and they are good. Now, oftentimes, and I want you to hear this, God's plans, the way that we don't see that God's plans are right and good and ultimately good for us for a long time. God is oftentimes not a God of immediacy. You know, it's one step after the other, and it's just continual faithfulness. I mean, the analogies that God gives for blessing and spiritual growth, again, they're not quick analogies. They're things like a tree growing. You ever sit there and watch a tree grow? It, it, it takes a long time. You know, it, it, it's slow, it's steady. But that's what the Lord desires in us. Uh, I love, as the psalmist says, blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord, who, who delights in what God has said and is faithful to do it day after day after day. He is like the strong tree. You know, my father's most regular and consistent advice to me, the phrase other than I love you, I'm proud of you, you know, my dad is, a, is an amazing dad, but the, the phrase that my dad has probably said to me more than any other phrase is, Jason, just do the next right thing. Just do the next right thing. When you've blown it, when you're down in the dumps, when you're in a situation where you say, how am I ever going to get out of this situation? Just do the next right thing. Just don't, don't worry about how you're going to get out of it. Just do the next thing that you know the Lord would be pleased with. And, and this is so important, I want you to hear this, and when everything's going great, when you're on the top of the world, when you're being blessed, when you're feeling blessing like you've never felt before, when everything is perfect, you know what you're supposed to do then? Just do the next right thing. <laughs> Keep doing the things that would please the Lord. Keep doing the thing that you know you're supposed to do. This is what life with the Lord is like. Faithful, consistent, obeying the Lord day to day to day. This is what pleases him. You know, Saul, the great king of Israel, and he did some amazing things. Saul had a lot of power. He had a lot of might. He, he brought these big sacrifices before the Lord. He won these great battles for the Lord. But the problem was is, is this kind of consistent obedience was not true of his life. He didn't trust the command of the Lord. And finally, Samuel, the prophet, sat him down and he said, Saul, the Lord desires obedience, not sacrifice. Obedience. Not sacrifice. You could give the biggest gift to the Lord. You could have the most amazing ministry. 
for the Lord. You know what the Lord wants? Obedience, trust, faith, not sacrifice. He wants your heart. It's a great little line. Day to day, they went along following the command of the Lord. May that be true of us. But the second thing that we see in this passage is this idea of complaint. This is really helpful, I think. I think we should spend some time thinking about this. Look at verse two. The people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Now, this is the fifth time. If you're keeping up, this is an interesting little study. The people's complaint against Moses and the Lord. This is the fifth time that they have complained against Moses and ultimately against God. They complained against Moses in chapter five when he first went to Pharaoh asking for freedom and Pharaoh made their task more difficult. They complained in chapter 14 when they saw the Egyptian army coming after them. They complained in chapter 15 uh, when they came to the bitter water of Marah. They complained last week we saw in chapter 16 when they were hungry in the wilderness And now here they are in chapter 17 and they're thirsty and they're complaining and they're quarreling again. Which which brings up a good question. Why do we complain? What is complaint? Why do we do this? You know, there will be no complaint. I love to think about this. There will be no complaint in the new heavens, new earth. When we're with the Lord someday, nobody will ever complain. There will be no complaint. And, and the reason, as you see it on the, the screen here, the reason we won't complain in the new heavens and the new earth, and, and this is very important, okay, is number one, everything will be right. Everything will be as it should be. But number two, and this is the key, <laughs> we will know everything is right. We will be convinced there in the presence of God in the rightness of everything. And so we won't complain. And so as you, as you think about where we are now, why do we cry out? Well, well some complaint is right. <laughs> we recognize something that is not right. We recognize real injustice, real discomfort. We, if you will, complain for good reason. We, we cry out when we're facing hardship and difficulty. And, and I, I just wanna urge you, that's going on in your life and you're crying out to the Lord and saying, Lord, why is this happening? There is a sense where that is totally right. You know, I think of Psalm 13. How long, O Lord? How long will my enemies triumph? How long will I have sorrow in my heart? How long, O Lord? Some of this complaint is just, it's the result of living in a fallen world. It's the result of living in a world of sin. But there's a different kind of complaint. There's another kind of complaint that is complaining because we don't know that everything is right. Right, so some complaint, you're complaining against something that truly isn't right, it's truly unjust, it's the result of a fallen and sinful world. But some complaint is actually sin itself because you're complaining against what is right. right. I get this kind of complaint from my kids all the time, right? They complain when they have to go to bed. They complain when they have to do their homework. They complain when I make them clean the house, right? They complain, they complain, they complain. But, but actually all of those things are good for them. Right? They, they are right things, but they just don't know that they're right. They don't have the wisdom to recognize that all of those things are good. And, and so much of our complaint is this kind of complaint. 
Some complaint is in line with the justice and desires of God. Some complaint is totally against the justice and the desires of God because we can't recognize what is right, what is ultimately good for us. I, I like to say it this way. We complain because we ultimately don't like what is ultimately good for us. We complain because we don't like what is ultimately good for us. Now, what struck me to this point, if you've kind of been doing a study of Israel's complaints, is that God doesn't smite them. <laughs> He's patient with them. Now, later this changes. Actually, in my little study, this is kind of the last complaint that they don't start to feel the judgment of God against their distrust, against their lack of faith. But up to this point, he just graciously and mercifully responds. And I love this. This so shows the character of the Lord. He's, he's bringing them out of bondage. He's bringing them uh, into a relationship with himself. He's proving his trustworthiness. He's proving his mercy and grace to them over and over and over. And, and I think that that same character of the Lord is, is true for you. I mean, God hears your complaints. If you are experiencing injustice, if you are experiencing pain, the Lord hears you. He wants to hear you. But I want to say this. Even your sinful complaints, <laughs> all of our complaints are evidences that our soul is longing for something, that our soul is not right. I'd like to say it this way. Every soul, to use this illustration, is thirsty. Every soul longs to be set right. Every soul longs to drink. Even if our sin is blinding us, from the way of God, even if our sin is blinding us to where that water is, our, our soul is needy, our soul is thirsty. There's unrest. And you know it, right? You know what I'm talking about. That, that unrest in your soul, that, that anxiety, that fear, that complaint, that, that anger, those things that drive us it's a complaint. You know what it is? You know what it really is? I want you to hear this. All of your complaints, you know what they come from? They come from separation from God. You, you, you complain when you don't feel intimacy with the Lord. And, and that's true of you. There's this longing. There's this, there's this thirst in your soul. And it's a response to the fact that you've been separated from God because of sin. You know, Dorothy Sayers, I love this quote. She says, sin is a deep interior dislocation of the soul. We, because of our sin, because we live in a sinful world, our souls aren't quite right. <laughs> they aren't as they should be. Our souls have been dislocated from God. Sin is a deep interior dislocation of the soul. It's a desire to keep control of your life. We talked about this last week. Israel was separated from God. They were in bondage. They had another God, Pharaoh. And even though, it, they'd, been a sa even though they'd been saved, they're still feeling the effects of their bondage. They're, they're still learning to trust their Savior. They're still learning communion with God. And as they do, and, and as we do, as we come to him, the Lord is so faithful to show mercy and grace and kindness that we can trust him. It's when we come into communion with God that he, he realigns our dislocated soul. Every soul is thirsty. Every soul has this longing. You know, you know what, here's what it is. Every soul has this loneliness. You know what I'm talking about? 
You can have a lot of friends. You have all these friends. You're married. You have kids. There's people all around you. You have a good job. But there's this loneliness in your heart. There's this longing in your heart. Here's what it is. Here's, here's what it is. It's your desire to know God. It's like this built-in mechanism in you that, that hungers and desires and thirsts to be in communion with God. And, and all over the Bible, over and over and over again, we see this analogy for this longing of thirst. Your soul is thirsty. There's this longing, this loneliness. Your soul is thirsty. And the, the only time in my life as a personal testimony that this is really assuaged, that I really feel full, that that loneliness or longing in my heart, that little part of my heart that I can't quite get right, the only time that that's fully assuaged is when I am very aware of my communion with the Lord. It's when I am very aware of my deep communion with the Lord. It's in prayer, it's in worship. When I'm deeply aware of the Lord, I have so much peace, but here's the deal. Here's the truth, here's personal testimony, but I know it's true of you too. So often, I feel that feeling, that loneliness, that longing, and I try to fill it with something else. I try to fill it with significance. Well, look at me, look what I've done. How can I feel this way? Because I've done this much. I try to fill it with material comfort. Look how awesome this is. I try to fill it with notoriety. And here's the deal, those things over and over and over leave us more thirsty than we ever were before. And we've seen this in literature, we see this in the Bible. You know, Augustine, the great church father, his confessions, I can give it to you in a sentence. He basically says, I tried money, I tried sex, I tried power, but my soul is restless until it rests in the Lord. Solomon, the great king, in Ecclesiastes, he says the same thing. He says, I ate, I drank, I was merry, I had wives, I had fortune. It's all a chasing after the wind. My soul is restless until it rests in the Lord. My soul is thirsty until it drinks from the Lord. And of course, this brings us to the last point. We've talked about obedience and complaint, but what about water? Look at verse five. It says, the Lord said to Moses, pass before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with with which you struck the Nile, and go, and I will stand before you there at the rock of Horeb, and you will strike the rock, and water will come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so. In the sight of all the elders of Israel, he called the name, the place, Massa and Meribah, because the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us? Or not. Do you see what's happening in this scene? This is an amazing scene. There's so much going on, but I don't want you to miss it. God says to Moses, gather the elders, and I, God says this to Moses, I will come down on the rock. I will come down on the rock of Horeb. You know, Horeb means waste or a wasteland, a desolate place. God says, I am coming down to the desolate place and I will stand before you on this rock of waste. You see, you get the picture? God is coming down among the people and he's standing before Moses on this rock in the desolate place. 
And he says to Moses, now this is fascinating, take the staff, the same staff, the exact same staff that you used to strike the Nile, the same staff that you used to strike the Nile that turned that water into blood, the same staff that you stretched out over the Red Sea that meant salvation for the people of Israel, but judgment, death for the people of of Egypt. Take that same staff and strike the rock where I am. Strike the rock where I am before you. And the place was called Meribah, which means place of strife. And when this rock was struck by Moses, in the middle of the desert, in the Middle East, water began to flow and the people drank and salvation came to them, to the people of Israel. Do you see the picture? (laughs) Do you see what's happening here? God came down to the rock and the judgment that the people deserved, he took on that judgment. I mean, look at the language. God says, I will stand before you. God doesn't stand before anyone. People stand before God, but but here God is standing before Moses on the on the rock of strife, and Moses strikes the rock. Moses strikes the rock with the same staff that had brought judgment on the Egyptians, the same staff that had turned the water into blood. That's the same staff that now Moses strikes the rock where God is. And when he does, when that rock where God is is struck, it's as if God is saying he would become bloody. He would be cast into the sea. He would be destroyed so that water might flow for the people, so that their needs might be met, so that how salvation might, become, might come to them. Do you see what's happening in this picture? You know, 700 years after this, Israel was in trouble. Israel had divided into two nations, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, the northern nation, had been taken away by the Assyrians, the southern nation, Judah. They were hearing from the prophet Isaiah, and he said, the same thing is gonna happen to you. Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. The nation is going to fall apart. But then the prophet says, but God will bring salvation. God will bring salvation again. A king will come and save the people. And Isaiah, the prophet says, is Isaiah 43, 19, behold, this is God, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth, you do not perceive it. I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. And this is good news for all of us because 700 years after that, about 1,500 years after God went down to the rock of Horeb, the rock of waste, where God was struck on the rock before all the people, Jesus came. He came to rescue his people. And just like... Just like this, just like Moses, his people did not receive him. They complained against him. Just like Moses, they wanted to kill him. And even though the people were guilty and Jesus was innocent, judgment passed to him. You know, there's this powerful scene at the end of Jesus' life where he's before Pilate. Kevin always makes fun of me because I say that Pilate is one of my favorite Bible characters. And it's not a common favorite Bible character. I just, Pilate is so interesting, but, but Pilate's there, he knows Jesus is innocent. His wife told him, <laughs> he's innocent. And there's two prisoners. There's Jesus and there's Barabbas. And it says of Barabbas, the Bible says of Barabbas, he was a notorious criminal, right? 
Not only is he not innocent, everyone knows he's guilty. Everyone knows he's guilty. And yet, the judgment of the cross is taken off of the guilty man, Barabbas, and he is set free and put on the innocent man. And he is destroyed. Jesus came down and he went outside the city to a desolate place. It was called a dump. And it was a rock called Golgotha. And he went on that rock and as he was there on the rock, this this rock of strife, the judgment of God came upon him. Jesus was struck by the rod of judgment. The, The same rod that should have brought all of us judgment. (laughs) Just like the Nile was turned into blood, just like the Red Sea was parted, the same rod that should have brought all of us judgment in in a real way struck Christ when he was on the cross, on the rock called Golgotha, in the desolate place. And Jesus endured the judgment that was ours. But I want you to hear this, because Jesus has done this, because he endured this judgment, because he died in our place from this rock, this rock called Calvary, this rock called Golgotha, from this rock flows a river of salvation, flows this soul-satisfying water for everyone who will drink of it. And so the question for you is, have you drunk of it? Have you you communed with God through Jesus? And in him has your soul been satisfied? You know, the old hymn writer Russell Carter wrote, down at the cross on Calvary's mountain, where mercies flow, I plunged in the redeeming fountain, washed whiter than snow, when nothing in the whole creation could purchase peace. My Savior brought his free salvation. And he gave me complete release. Don't you want to be free from that longing, from that anxiety, from that loneliness? Brothers, won't you hear the story? See the fountain flow. Oh, glory in the highest glory. Jesus saves me. This I know. Don't you see that Jesus went down to the rock and now there's a river to everyone who believes in him. You know, in the ministry of Jesus There's this very famous scene where he went to a well, and it was a well in the Samaritan land, but it had been dug by Jacob, who was the grandson of Abraham. And while he was there, he encountered this Samaritan woman, and he he asked her to give him a drink. And it was shocking for her, because Jews and Samaritans did not talk to one another. They were incredibly racially divided. They had nothing to do with one another. But we read in John 4.10, She's shocked at Jesus's, that he would ask her, that he would speak to her at all. And, and Jesus says to her, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew who it was that was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. Now the woman's a little shocked by this because this is Jacob's well. Jacob obviously was a, a figure in all of their national history. 
the whole town depended on this well, and, and she kind of comes to him and she says, look, are you kind of suggesting, sir, that you're, ba- that you're greater than Jacob? Did you, have greater, did you have something greater than this well? And Jesus says, everyone who drinks of this water, the water of Jacob's well, they'll be thirsty again. Just like all of you know that. You know that longing in your soul? You try to fill it with significance. You try to fill it with notoriety. You try to make more money. You try to go on a better vacation. You try to remodel your house. You get a doodle. You think, finally, finally, I'm going to be satisfied. I'm going to feel loved. Everyone who drinks of this will will be thirsty again. But Jesus says, the water I give The water I give him will become a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And I love her response. She says, sir, give me this water. (laughs) Where do you get water like that? Give me this water so I'm gonna be thirsty and come here over and over to draw water. Now what's so interesting after this happens, she's saying to him, give me some water. I'm tired of carrying these jars. Where's the water? And the next thing Jesus says he says, go call your husband. It's kind of a strange turn in the story, but if you get the analogy, if you understand, and I hope you do by now, what's actually going on here, Jesus is not just speaking to her physical need, he's speaking to her soul, and he says, go get your husband. And she says, I have no husband, and Jesus says, you're right in saying I have no husband, you've had five husbands, and the one who you're now with is not your husband. What you have said is true. Here's her well that she was going to love. I want to be loved. And so she'd go to these people over and over and over again, and one after another. I mean, I can't imagine this in this shame culture of the Middle East. One failed marriage, and two failed marriage, and three failed marriage, and four failed marriage, and five failed marriage. There's no sense of self. There's no sense of dignity in her She's coming to Jesus and she's not just physically thirsty. (laughs) She is spiritually thirsty. Her soul is thirsty. There is a longing in her soul. And Jesus says, look, if you really knew, if you really got it, if you really saw it, you would realize that that I have living water. Now the conversation turns and it it turns toward worship and it turns toward the Messiah, the Messiah that will come. And this woman believed in a coming Messiah that one day a Messiah would come. One day there would be salvation. But at the end of this story, for the first time ever in the ministry of Jesus to this woman who was so needy and so thirsty with really nothing to give, with no notoriety, with total shame, You know what Jesus does? You know, for the first time, you know, the first person he says, he reveals this great secret to, it's her. And he says, I am the Messiah. The one who you are talking to now is he. I am him. I am the Messiah. And if you follow him, if you trust him, if you drink from him, you will never thirst again. I want you to hear this. Your life, my life, we were meant for God. We were meant to commune with God. And until you drink of him and commune with him and know him and you're aware of this deep satisfaction, you will always have anxiety. You will always have this loneliness. You will always have this longing. You'll always have this fear. It it will never go away. You can fill it with whatever you want to fill it with. It's only filled by one thing. 
when you drink from the river that God has given us, when you drink from the river that the cross provided, when Jesus came down to the rock and all of your sin, the very thing that was keeping you out of fellowship with God, all of your sin was dealt with and a river flows. It's why Jesus can say a few chapters later in the Gospel of John, John 7, if anyone is thirsty, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Have you drunk from this well? Have you drunk from this river? Are you communing with the Lord in Christ? Do you, do you look to Jesus right now and knowing that the thing that separates you from God has been canceled because Jesus came to the rock for you? Because he was struck for you and now a river flows. Have you drunk from this river? Have you been restored to God? You know what the last scene of the Bible is? Last scene, last, last scene. And then it, whole, it ends, the last scene. Talk about the movie before, this epic story that we're invited to. We do have a picture of what it's gonna be like, but here's the last scene, the very last scene. We're in the New Jerusalem. Those in Christ, we're in the New Jerusalem, and right? New Jerusalem, no complaints. Why? Because everything is right, and we know everything is right. And the last invitation, the last thing that is said in the whole show, the whole Bible, is Revelation 22. And it says this, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. You hear what it's saying? It's saying all the people of God, the Holy Spirit of God, everyone who hears this message, come, 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 come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. <laughs> In the new Jerusalem, there's no longing, there's no anxiety, there's no fear, there's no complaint because the water of life is available because then we will drink from the water of life without price because the price has been paid by the one who for us came down to the rock. <laughs> who stood before the wrath of God and was struck on our behalf, but because he was struck, a river flows. Won't you drink of it today? Let's pray. Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to believe. I pray, Father, you would lift us out of these little narratives that we so often find ourselves in the middle of. We're trying to figure out something significant, some significant story to tell about our lives, some justification for ourselves. Would you lift us out of those little stories by this story, your story? And would you, by Christ, call us into this story that we may know you, that may, we may drink of the water of life without price. Father, convict our hearts. Lord, give us hearts that are repentant today and faithful today, that we would, we would turn away from these little stories, these little false narratives, these, these other idols that call to us, and would you turn our hearts fully and quickly 
and humbly and faithfully and sacrificially to you, Lord. Father, I thank you that because you love us, because you're merciful and kind and gracious to us, Lord, you have, you have sent a savior who went to the rock on our behalf so that now we can experience the water of life. Lord, may we be a people who drinks from that water today. And I pray all of this in the strong and right and good name of our redeemer, our mediator, Jesus.